Hello, and here we are again, myself, Stephen Wilson, and my colleague, Tim Bowness here. And this is the second part of our Album Years podcast discussing what is turning out to be an incredibly uh, verdant year for important and significant album releases, 1977. And in the first episode, Tim, we talked about the, the sort of UK, US punk uh, scene and how that also influenced or whether coincidentally or by design some of the other music that was coming out at the time specifically how it had an impact on some more progressively orientated mm-hmm. artists people like van der Graaff, generator hawkwind and pink floyd's album of the year animals which was a very angry record so now we're going to actually talk about progressive rock itself because there was a whole lot of other progressive rock that paid no lip service to to what was going on in terms of of um, punk music and disco music. So the the more purist approach, if you like, to progressive rock, or or the kind of progressive albums that seemed oblivious to to the shift in in the musical climate. And there's quite a lot, isn't there? And some of these are good records, right? Um, yeah. Well, I think as, as we said in the other show that this year. It was it was a peak era for many genres, many types of bands that, for whatever reason, 76 seemed slightly sleepier, slightly tired. And 77 isn't necessarily only good for what people see as the new music, the punk revolution, which, as we've said, in some ways, you know, didn't produce that many great albums during this period. But it seems to be good in reggae it seems to be good in prog rock it seems to be good in disco it seems to be good in soft rock that there's a lot of artists really at the top of their game at the same time and also as we said that that revolution was very much an underground yeah very much press-led revolution wasn't it it certainly wasn't a commercial revolution was it so the big records of the time were outside of of that genre so let's look at some of the so one of the ones that you you mentioned a few times in in our previous episode was the yes album from from this year going for the one which is mad isn't it i mean it's as ambitious and and unselfconsciously over the top and pretentious as anything yeah that the band did and in a good way uh all for the good really i mean this to me has my favorite yes epic on it awaken yeah and and obviously they had a they kind of scored a freak hit single off this record as well didn't they wondrous Stories. yeah which is how i discovered the band when i think i um heard Again, wondrous stories on top of the pops. Absolutely loved it. And there was a TV advert at the time. One of the things that there used to be were TV adverts in Britain pushing albums. And I remember two of the albums that were pushed massively. One was Yes, Going for the One. And the other one was 10cc's Live and Let Live that were just on TV almost all the time in between the Avengers or whatever was on, or the new Avengers it would have been at that point. Um, and we're not obviously talking about Marvel New Avengers here. We're talking about the proper Avengers. Proper, proper, proper. Avengers. We're talking Patrick McNee. And Diana We're talking Rigg. Joanna Limley. Joanna Lumley. Limley. And Diana Rigg, of course. Yeah. Proper Avengers and proper New Avengers. What was the name of the, the, the actor that played Gambit or whatever his name was? Mike. <laughs> <laughs> we should know this. We should know this. Anyway, carry Linda on. Thorson. I oh, know Linda Thorson. No, no who was the guy that played Gambit? Yeah, she was in the event. He was no. always flirting with Joan Joan Lump. Is it Purdy? Purdy, yeah. He was always flirting with her. What was his uh, name? Well, what's interesting is if we're not talking about futuristic things in 1977, Purdy's haircut. Purdy's haircut at the time, absolutely alien. 
by 1980-81, every girl in my school had the Purdy haircut. That was the future. Well, we're digressing slightly here. We're talking about Purdy's haircut. But yeah? yes, getting back to yes, going for the one. So this is a, a, a mad, mad record, isn't it? I mean, it's it starts off, if I remember rightly, the opening track starts off with a sort of a doingy, 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 do, almost like a bluegrass yeah, yeah. country thing. And then you end, the end of the record, you end with this church organ and this choir. I mean, it couldn't be thinking more big if it tried, could it? Although what is interesting, what you've pointed out there, is it begins with a kind of rock and roll country style riff and it ends on that because the very end of Awaken, which I agree with you, might be my favourite Yes epic as well, actually has that really sweet country line oh, the from little, Steve Howe. The little lick at the end, yeah. yeah. Which I, almost sounds like he just did it. You know, totally spontaneously. And, and they kept it in. Yeah. You know, you're just thinking, I'm just tuning my guitar up here. Well, this is another album where, you know, where they're at the top of the game and, um, as you say, it's as unselfconsciously ridiculous, flamboyant, fantastical as anything they've ever done. Totally untouched by what's seemingly surrounding them. Um, but equally, they're being very true to themselves because, you know, Steve Howe, lest we forget, he comes from that kind of Les Paul, Chet Atkins background never pretends to do anything else. And I think that's mm. what made... You know, I think when, when you get a special band, and I think, yes, we're a special band, Roxy Music equally, is when you get people from very different musical disciplines. And so Steve Howe is ostensibly in this pompous prog band, but actually he's closer to Chet Atkins, he's closer to Les Paul than he is John McLaughlin at the time. You know, I know he can go off at wild, almost Coltrane-esque tangents, mm. but... I think that's always the difference, isn't it, between a first-generation band and a second-generation band? Is a first, and by, by yeah, what I mean by that is that the first gest- first generation of quote-unquote progressive rock bands never thought of themselves as progressive rock bands. There was no precedent. Exactly. So they were basically a bunch of creative musicians that came together, and whether by luck or judgment somehow created this melting pot that just worked. Yes, Genesis, Pink Floyd, all come from different backgrounds. And then the second generation of progressive rock bands are basically the bands that have listened to the first generation. So you get this kind of reduced palette of tropes that they've taken from this first generation. And then the third generation, the fourth generation, eventually you end up with you know, something that essentially is just a bunch of cliches and, of course, refutes the whole notion of of, progressive music. Well, I think the thing is that we said before, you know, the whole sort of underground revolution, late 60s, early 70s, they were defining themselves. They were discovering uh, this music. And um, you can still hear it, you know, yes, 1977, they're still defining themselves, still finding themselves in fresh spaces. And you're right, it's partly because, you know, how might come from a, a country background. Anderson, at times, you can certainly hear the Beatlesque influence, but also classical and Motown. And then Wakeman brings in an entirely different set of influences. And and it's 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 a collision of quite interesting musicians at a particular point. And this album, I suppose, the closest comparison, because to a certain extent, they've reined themselves in from relayer and topographic, just to a certain extent, in the sense that melody is stronger on this. And um, and there's more of a pop element. But again, I don't feel it's a pop element that they brought in to hit the charts. It's because that's what 
They do. That's where they came from. They come from Beatles, the association, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Bee Gees, exactly. Totally, yeah. So it's a natural distillation of their tastes. And uh, yeah, it's got several of my favourite tracks of theirs. And I suppose in some ways... It's a continuation of the Chris Squire and John Anderson albums that preceded it about a year before, which I think, again, although they're both quite experimental, they were also both richly melodic recordings, slightly simpler than Relayer in some ways, slightly simpler than Topographic. And so I think this is a really, like Close to the Edge, which is my other favourite Yes album, it's a really, really nice fusion of the band at their most experimental and accessible. I think what I like about Awaken on this record, and and it's true also of the title track of Close to the Edge, is there actually is a beautiful rigour in the way the epic is structured. It is a series of themes that are explored, returned to. So it's almost like this pop sensibility in the sense that it's structured like a great pop song that returns to hooks and themes. And this is something I'm always disappointed with, with with so-called, you know, modern or neo-progressive rock music. And I probably include myself among this. Some of my tracks also probably suffer from the same thing. Some of my longer pieces suffer from the same thing, which is just a series of bits strung together to give the impression of some kind of conceptual rigour. And actually, when you listen to something like Awaken, you realise how beautifully structured that is. The way that the climax of the piece comes with that kind of cycle of fifths um, chord progression that's first Mm. introduced at the beginning of the song, the way the symmetry of the song, it begins with this ethereal section which is reprised at the end. But obviously in a variation of the way it was in the first part of the song. And... That structural rigor you hear in the very finest progressive music, yeah. and you and I miss it in some of the poorer examples of the genre. And I think, yes, we're always very good at that. In fact, they didn't always have it. Gates of Delirium, arguably, is a more rambling. Mm. It's just like a bunch of bits strung together. And I think that's why it's it's definitely not at the same level as something like, as you say, Close to the Edge or Awaken. And it's, you know, by their standards, actually, it's quite tightly arranged as well. It's 15 minutes as opposed Mm. to 21 or 22 minutes or whatever. And then Wondrous Stories, as you say, is just a glorious piece of pop. I mean, it's off with the fairies. It's actually a beautiful piece of pop. Um, And to have them on the same record and on the same, I think they're on the same side, aren't they? They're both sides. Yeah, they are, yeah. And Turn of the Century as well, I think, has got a similar feel in terms of that timelessness and spiritual quality that they uh, seem to mine very successfully. I mean, I think it's probably the last... I mean, I think the last unselfconscious and strong Yes album in the sense is Tomato, although I realise that Tomato is a mess. It's a complete and utter disastrous mess, but in a way that's creatively natural. You can see that they're trying to find a way of expressing themselves, and I think the failures make it compelling see i don't think it is unselfconscious i think that's the first time you can hear yes are aware of how things have changed how the times have changed and they are responding to that um on that record i really like tomato i think it's a very underrated record i think we've talked about it on the show before i also love drama i think that for me is the last great yes record and i say that with the caveat that that actually 90125 is a brilliant reinvention of themselves as a pop band but i think that that's in a sense, they have sacrificed some of their identity in order to achieve that 
uh, that transition. Whereas I think drama, they still sound quintessentially like, yes, it's a great record. Tomato is a mad record where I feel like they're flailing a bit. And I like the fact that they're flailing a bit because it's kind of taking them into new directions. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like I always compare that to Queen's jazz album, Hmm. where Queen's jazz, on one level, it's supremely confident and supremely queen. But on another, they are trying so many different things Hmm. simultaneously half of which do not work. Mm. But it's fascinating because of that, really. You know, they are messes. And again, I think Queen were lucky that it had Don't Stop Me Now as the big hit from that album. So it kind of rescued Although it that commercially. Wasn't, actually, the funny thing is... Bicycle that, Race as well. Yeah, Don't well. Stop Me Now wasn't a big hit at the time. It's, it's funny, it's become almost the... I would say outside of Bohemian Rhapsody, it's almost the most well-known Queen song now because it's yeah. been in, it's been used in so many movies, and it's one of those. I mean, Queen were always great, weren't they? The slogan songs: mm. "We are the champions." We will rock you. Don't stop me. They're great. The sentiment is so adaptable yeah. to so many different contexts. At the time, I remember "Don't Stop Me Now" was like a middling, you know, number seventeen. Maybe it got to one week and then it was out of the chart. But it's funny; it's become a classic. But yes, you're right. That album is is. Um, um, is all over the place stylistically. Anyway, we're digressing. We're coming. We're, we're coming back. Well, to- this is. Fo- I think this is a. This is a yes album that is really kind of focused. And I guess the only thing that defines it seventy seven is the production is more spacious than it would have been a few years earlier. It's kind of, it's area, more ethereal, I think, as a it's, record. Even though it's got Going for the One, which is quite a yeah. gritty piece, it's more ethereal overall. It's, it's readier, it's thinner, it's got more use of reverb on it. It doesn't have that that sort of very upfront closeness that they had on things like the Yes album, no. Fragile, Close to the Edge. But maybe it's a, it's a time thing. You know, at the time, that would have sounded more contemporary and it would have been the records from the early 70s that suddenly very, yes, sounded a bit old-fashioned. Yeah. But now when we listen to the difference i think the records from the early 70s have probably aged better than than this particular record it's a record that that um i would have liked to have been able to to do as part of the series of of remixes but no no tapes ever showed up for it unfortunately right no it would be perfect for it and i think because again there is so much space in the arrangements in some of these tracks and then also of course when you have going for the one the title track so much density in yeah. it you know so it's it is an album of extremes in that respect but yeah i think it's one of their their strongest records and it's unselfconscious and it's <laughs> unashamedly them so always one of my favorites and it's as i say i, I discovered it Wonder Stories, Top of the Pops, and then I think a couple of older brothers of friends had the albums in their collections. And it's that when you're looking at the sleeves and going for the one in particular, had that kind of triple gatefold. Mm. And, you know, when I was that kind of age, these things seem quite mysterious, quite miraculous, mm. quite unusual. It's completely off with the fairies in, the, in exactly the way you want Yes to be. Yes. Uh, I personally, I think Yes are at their best when they are... Completely, you know, reaching for the stars. Um, and I think that's why this is the last, la- maybe that's why, you, as you say, this is the last classic Yes album yeah. in the sense that every album after this, you felt they were more aware and more self-conscious about perhaps what was going on around them. Yeah, I mean, 9 12, I think you're right. 9 5 actually is a very good album. Only of Only Heart is a justified classic rock classic but it feels to me like a producer's record it feels to me like an A&R record it's brilliant but there's not much of the band in there as brilliant as it is and I think that they never really recovered I know that they tried to sort of rehabilitate aspects of close to the age topographic awaken in their 
mid-90s work, but it seems like a self-conscious attempt to do that. That's the thing, yeah. And I think Anderson probably did do it, though. I think, uh, me, personally, I think a few of the things he did with Vangelis, those seemed like genuine improvisations into fresh territory. So I think, you know, Friends of Mr. Carr has got some great stuff. Short Stories have got some great stuff. And there's that very long Private collection. Private collection. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great album. Um, and what's interesting is that is completely fresh in terms of its electronic, mm. electropop terminology and mm. technology. Um, but it's 100% Anderson away with the fairies as well. You know, that mm. feels like a, a voyage of discovery in a sense. Talking of being away with the fairies, the Enid, airy fairy nonsense. The music is, it's its rock music, it's progressive rock music, but it has pretensions of being serious classical music. I think it defines the word flowery. And yet I quite like it for the same reason that I like Yes being unselfconsciously absurd uh, and, and reaching for the stars. And... Ironically, there's something a bit punk about that attitude, isn't there? There is. And they are an extraordinary band. I mean, very distinctive. I suppose they're one of the last of the first wave of progressive bands that have got an instantly recognisable sound. And there's something in it that's very cloying as well. There's something about their sound, the harmonies, quite unique harmonies. They've got the dynamics of an orchestra. I suppose this is where the classical Mm. element comes in, that whereas... Certain rock bands playing orchestral themes, the Enid at times actually are almost like an orchestra playing rock because they've got the dynamics well, of also a, there's an orchestra. A, we talked in the last episode about bands or artists that have no influence from jazz at all in their music. Yeah. This band is completely... It, it's so drawn from the tradition of classical music as opposed to the traditions of black music or jazz music. There is none... So it's classical music and it's progressive rock, isn't it, basically? Yeah, and I think that had they emerged maybe three or four years earlier with this sound, they'd have been more successful I think so. than they, they were. I mean, I think it's testament to the music that they're still being talked about and these albums are still being reissued because an awful lot of progressive music during this period was poor. Or, you know, was reg- you know we were in that era, slightly before Neo-Prog, but of people regurgitating ideas and it being fairly exhausted. This was actually a fresh injection into the, the genre, even though you kind of feel that it should have been released in 73, 74, really. They, they sound like nothing else. They do sound yes. like nothing else. I mean, it, it is, if you step away from it and you kind of look at it, look at the music objectively... It is tasteless beyond belief. (laughs) But I love music sometimes that doesn't care about what is good taste or bad taste. I mean, this this idea of rocking the classics, I mean, Mm. has ever a more horrendous concept been conceived of than rocking up classical music? And yet, essentially, that is what the Enid are doing, isn't it? It is. But there's something about them which is also quite emotional. There's a kind of distinctive harmony, and um, Stephen Stewart is a very distinctive guitarist as well. It's it's the whole band. It's not just Robert John Godfrey's compositions. Well, Francis Licorice also. So the original lineup yeah. on this album, actually Francis Licorice was more of a, a contributor than Stephen Stewart at this moment. I think he wrote the song of Fand, which is a 18 minute piece that takes yeah. up the whole of one side of this record. I mean, this is a piece of, you know, unashamedly flowery, airy, fairy, progressive rock in an era when that's probably not what people want 
or expect. But as you say, it's kind of t- it, it has stood the test of time because it is so out on its own. And it has the courage of its convictions. And I think that's the difference yes. in a way that Love Beach by Emerson and Palmer. Sorry to keep coming to, back to that as a touchstone, <laughs> as a touchstone of everything that went Look, wrong. An officer and a gentleman's good. No, it really isn't, Tim. <laughs> a touchstone of everything that went wrong with progressive rock. And because it's, it seems like it hasn't even got the courage of its own convictions, to me anyway. Yeah. So let's move on to another album that somehow seems to have bucked the trend this this year a great record a first division progressive rock record at a time when people shouldn't have been making progressive rock records apparently or so mm. so history tells us a farewell to kings by rush yeah um i think one of their their best records in fact probably the best record for me of the so-called progressive years not their best record. I think Moving Pictures is their best yeah. record to come. Mm. But but of the sort of era when they were unashamedly making sword and sorcery influenced progressive rock or Ayn Rand influenced progressive rock, whatever Neil Peart was writing about at the time. This is the one for me uh, from from the early years. And I had the privilege to to remix it. But there's something about it that also maybe it's something about the fact they were Canadian it's much tauter and leaner and more rocking than the earlier generation of progressive rock bands, yeah. isn't it? And that's kind of what gave Rush their their identity. This this very small guitar, bass, drums unit that had this very taut sound that at the same time it was quite epic. It also rocked. It really rocked in a way that progressive rock had not rocked before this. I'm sure there's a there's probably an exception that proves the rule, but for me, Rush are the ones that really mastered that thing, you know, of being able to rock and play these epics as well. I think you're right. I mean, I remember Sid Smith hearing this because he wasn't from the generation. Who? Who's Sid Smith? Smith? Who the see? <laughs> and he thought, who is he? You have to explain to our listeners. Sid him. Smith. Who's Sid Smith? Who's People Sid don't know who Sid Smith Everybody is. Everybody knows who Sid Smith is. Certainly Sid Smith knows who Sid Smith is. Sid Smith might know who Sid Smith is. Sid Smith is uh, King renowned, Crimson. Renowned, renowned music journalist, music journalist, commentator. And also Robert Fripp, King Crimson biographer and so on. Thank you. Now we can go on. And Sid, I think, went to one of these album evenings where they were playing A Farewell to Kings. And he wrote about it in his blog and just said, well, coming to it for me, because he was somebody who was kind of a first generation progressive fan, but then got into jazz and got into post-punk and experimental electronic music. And he just said, oh, just sounded like every Genesis cliche put together no. in different ways. And I thought, no, no, not, not at, all. at all. And I just didn't see this because I think there's something quite fresh about it. And it might be because they're Canadian and isolated, as you've pointed out. But there's an energy, intensity, and hysteria to this music that you don't get in the British progressive bands. Um, perhaps Van de Graaff, maybe there's a kind of hysteria and energy well, in this. Well, you know, I, I, sorry to interrupt. I would say the closest precedent for me for Rush, and I think this is probably what was their perhaps their, their biggest influence in some respects, is when Led Zeppelin went as far as they did in the direction of progressive rock yeah, on tracks like um, in the lights on physical graffiti, Achilles last stand, 
which are kind of contemporary to what Rush were doing yeah. here anyway, 1970, the year before. To me, that's probably the closest comparison in the sense that this is a band that are kind of harnessing riffs that Jimmy Page might have played. But in this context of these long epic tracks, which have got progressive structures to them. But no one rocks like them, except perhaps Zeppelin at their most progressive for me in that in that way. Yes, and I think it's interesting that both the bands in different ways had a huge influence on punk and grunge artists. One thing I've said to you, which I don't think you would necessarily agreed with, was that Rush, I think, have got the intensity and hysteria and, and Rush, if you like, of a lot of punk music. That friends I knew who liked new wave and punk bands... Rush were one of the few rock bands or epic rock bands they'd listen to and like. And I think partly, as you explained, there's a tautness, there's a tightness. They're even tighter than Led Zeppelin in terms of their sound. Mm. It's a very raspy, reedy Mm. rock sound. And Geddy Lee's voice is not remotely pretty. Mm. It's quite shrill. Mm. And I think that in some ways it kind of communicated to the age in the way that animals does. It's accidental Mm. entirely, Mm. but I think they kind of sit. Whereas Awaken and Fanned, you know, the Enid, yes, they're as far away from Year Zero as possible. There's something in A Farewell to Kings that is at one with Year Zero. It's that taut guitar, bass, drums, trio, and that squealing. You know, Temples of Syrinx, in some ways, is a short... No, that's on 2112, I know. Get it right. Error. It wasn't an error. I was going back on 2112. It is as much of a short, sharp shock as the Ramones. They rock. I mean, I think that's the simple reality of the matter. Well, think of is, the end of Cygnus X1. Yeah. It's demented. That's a bit Van de Graaffy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah the, the harmony is very dissonant. It's very Van de Graaffy. But some of the riffs are, are you know, pure Zepp as well. Um, yeah. I mean, but Zeppelin, I think what's interesting with Zeppelin is that when we do 1987, we find out that Zeppelin, I think, continued to hold sway and have an influence because they were such a great basic rock band in an imaginative way and the who i'd put in that category Mm. as well of basic four-piece rock bands that do something so unique with the formula and so special and sound so wonderful with such a simple lineup but interesting both the who and the zeppelin were kind of at a low point at this time yeah they i think they were having a little bit of crisis of confidence so rush in a way came in to fill that void it, you know, I mean, being able to write a great sub three minute pop song like Close to the Heart, that's mm-hmm. not something a lot of so-called quote unquote progressive rock bands could have pulled off. No. But there is something more earthbound about them. I mean, if John Anderson and Yes sound like they are completely off with the fairies, ditto the Enid, Rush sounds somehow more tethered to earth, despite the lyrical subject matter. Maybe it's the fact that Geddy does sound, you know, you can kind of hear the precedent of Robert Plant. Uh, maybe someone like Roger Chapman from Family, mm-hmm. or, or the guy that David Pavlos Dog, David Surkamp from from Pavlos Dog. Yeah, there's there's a definitely present. It's interesting. I found, and I maybe you you found the same thing. I found that Rush are one of those bands that if you didn't discover them when, and this is interesting, what you're talking about, Sid. If mm-hmm. you didn't discover them when you're a teenager, you'll never get it. And I think Kiss are another example of this kind of band. I know a lot of people that, who's opinions i really respect mm-hmm. who love kiss and it's because they fell in love with them as teenage boys 
Right. And I listen to Kiss now, and I don't quite understand the appeal. And I think there's a similar thing going on with Rush. I did discover Rush when I was a teenager, and I still love them to this day. If you play A Farewell to Kings, and I think Sid's reaction is a good example of this, if you play Rush to someone now, a grown-up person, I think they struggle to understand the appeal. And I wonder if they are one of those bands that you have to discover as a teenager. Do you know what I mean? There are certain bands Uh, like that. Yeah, no, I do know that. Um, Difficult to know, because, yeah, like you, I think I probably discovered it when I was 13. Yeah, I remember... I did go to Probe Records and try and buy a Did Rush they let album. you buy it? No. They didn't let you buy it? Pete Burns told me to fuck off and go to Virgin instead. A young lad like you, you shouldn't be listening to this shit. <laughs> go to fucking Virgin. <laughs> well, he did the same. But he did the same when I tried to buy Teardrop Explodes. Um, only about a year later, when I tried to buy, I think it was Treason, so it had been early 1980s or late 79, the Zoo Records version. And it was really reluctant to let me buy. And the, the, there is a payoff to the store. Well, that's because he probably him and Joe, Julian hated each other, didn't they? Well, they he? worked at the store at the same time. But yeah, they were so in, they but might they have hated also, each other. Yeah. And I love Treason. What an amazing thing. Yeah. And I remember trying to buy sort of Rush and Tidrick Explodes and Pete Burns serving me and not... With, with Tidrick Explodes, he let me have it. Rush, he didn't let me have it. And Jeff Davis, who's the shop manager, said, you can't do that. We're a shop. Right. And he went, I'm not having any young lad is not going to listen to this shit. I think Farewell to Kings, this is why I think this is where they got it just right in terms of their more, quote, as I say, quote unquote, progressive years. This is where they got it, the balance just right. And I, I would probably recommend this as a good, st- this and Moving Pictures, I, I think for me is. Well, that's it. I think that out of all of those albums, when I've listened back to them, those are the two that I come back to and think yeah. are good. Yeah. Farewell to Kings, Moving Pictures. And the cover of um, Feld Kings as well, which has that kind of slight echo of Led Zeppelin Four as well, where it's not quite what you think. It's a really mm. interesting sleeve. But yeah, the payoff with the Pro Plus was that um, Jeff Davis, who was trying to let me have the album, the manager of the store, um, as Stephen will know, the very first No Man single ended up on Pro <laughs> Plus Records. That's right. So Jeff actually put out some no man material. So the man that refused or, you know, well, not technically it wasn't him, but the man whose store refused to sell you a copy of Rush's Hemispheres ended up releasing your first single. Ended up releasing the first single. And that was funny because I went in and I said, would anyone be interested in listening to, to a tape? And they let me upstairs, played it and then said, yeah, we'll release it. How easy was that? It was very easy. That's 1990. And it sounds yeah. like something out of, obviously, you know, like the Brian Epstein cellar full of noise. It's like, mm. yes, boys, I'll release it. It was like that. I went with a demo tape, played it, said, this is great. Do you want us to put it out? The good old days. Right. So let's... I let, remember them. Let's move on, Tim. So now this is a band I, don't, I know absolutely nothing about. So I'm hoping you do because you put it on the list. So I'm assuming Did I? you do. Kansas, point of no return. Now, I have to say, in my mind, and I I do speak from incredible ignorance here, I will concede that up front, I've always thought of of progressive rock as a very British thing, in the sense that if you were going to put together a list of the top ten progressive rock artists, you'd probably have eight English ones, one Canadian one, and Frank Zappa as the the token of if even if you would concede Frank Zappa was a progressive, which I, th- yeah. I kind of think he was, you know. The other the all the other entrants in the and I'm I'm obviously I'm slightly discounting some of the German bands here because I don't think they really played 
that's there was a few bands in Germany yeah. that did. But the real first division progressive rock bands, for me, they almost all come from the UK. So I have this blind spot. I, I always lump these bands like Kansas, Styx, Star Castle, um, mm. Toto, Boston, Ario Speedwagon. I'm probably comparing bands here that have nothing in common. But in my mind, yeah. I, they all seem to be around at the same time. And, and whenever I've heard them... I found it difficult to tell you which one was Saga. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they were the Canadian. Canadian yeah. yeah. Well, but, there was FM and Saga were the Canadian right. pop bands. So, and I've not really, and I've to be fair, I've not really liked anything I've heard. It always seems like a very watered down. It sounds like they've listened to Yes and Genesis, and then they've kind of filtered it through an FM rock. Yeah. kind of sort of uh, uh, perspective. And what's come out the other end has got no appeal to me whatsoever. Is there anything that you want to disabuse me of in terms of that notion, Tim, in relation to Kansas and Point of No Return? It's a difficult thing here, isn't it? Because yeah, um, assuming you do know this record, I don't know. Put it on the list because you've read it on a Wikipedia page. Yeah, it was a Wikipedia albums released in 1977, Kansas Point of No Return. <laughs> I'm going to write it down. I wrote everything down on Wikipedia because obviously all truth comes from that. Um, I uh, we did have you know because in the shows we tend to edit this ruthlessly. And there are a few areas, there are quite a few areas that Stephen knows that I don't. For example, he is an industrial fan. We'll come on to that later. Yeah. I Big don't year for really industrial know that music. much. Yeah. And I tend to know more rock and roll, country and even American FM rock than Stephen. And uh, we did do a whole section on FM rock that we edited out because I didn't feel I'd express myself particularly well. What was the was, What was the band under discussion on that? one? I think it was probably Journey's Escape album, which I oh Journey, yes. So they're another band. I put yeah. in this, exactly. I put this in. I put them in this category. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably Journey's Escape and Sticks Paradise Theatre yeah, albums that, that I, I was defending. All that stuff. Yeah. And I, we also did a marvelous bit on country music concept albums from the seventies, Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson, which I think are fantastic. Quite wayward releases by the bad boys of country but yeah i was kind of aware of this because a few people listened to it again it was more older brothers stuff than it was my generation stuff and some of it was interesting and, and you are right i think you capture it with with bands like sticks and kansas they'd been clearly super powered by yes and genesis but they also had a kind of down-home rock and pop rock sensibility that you could almost associate with Leonard, you know, Leonard Skinnerd, in a sense. And Point of No Return is probably the band at their most textured. This and Left Overture, it's the album where they're the closest to that kind of bass pedal symphonic prog, but there's still the big FM rock harmonies and so on. And I guess Styx's equivalent of this was The Grand Illusion, but Styx also had an extra influence from Queen, I think, in the vocal harmonies. It's never been particularly favourite music of mine, but I'm aware of it. Do you own any of it? Do, do you own any of these records? Do you like them? Do you listen to them? No, I think I listen to them for research. OK. Um, and I... I have a couple of Blue Oyster Cult albums, if you count that. Well, I quite like Blue, the first four Blue Oyster Cult albums I, I, I like, um, but they, they don't fall into this cat, this category for me because it's much darker. I can hear the influence of stuff like Sabbath um, in Blue Oyster Cult. But but you're right, there's probably, a, there's probably a crossover, isn't there? Yeah, I think also I think that Blue Oyster Cult, you know, they were close friends with the Patti Smith group and Patti Smith yeah. co-writes a couple of pieces yeah. and... They, and so on. Um, they had the best song titles ever as well. What is yes. that? 18 Screaming Diz Busters. <laughs> Do you 
Just the best song titles ever, Blue Oyster Cult. And, and a few glorious epics. But what I think, again, about Blue Oyster Cult and why I suppose they appeal to me is you can still hear, and this is maybe the link between them and Patti Smith Group, because the sound of, let's say, um, you know, Spectres and Easter couldn't be further away from each other. But what both bands have as roots is clearly a love of that kind of American psychedelia mm. when the birds become a yeah, little... Yeah. Off colour. Oh yeah, don't fear the reaper. Is the is the birds? If the exactly. birds come out ten years later, that would have been there. And I think that's song, yeah. it. You know, yeah. the, there's a kind of birds Todd Rundgren quality yeah. that permeates Patti Smith and um, Blue Oyster Cult, despite their very different sounds. So no, you know, I, I kind of it's just some of the music that I, I found. Um, I could listen to it. And, and a few of the albums, I mean, again, Kilroy was here, the concept album from 1983, where they partly go electropop, sticks, this is. It's absurd. And I quite like anything that is absurd in that sense, that it's out of context. Paradise Theatre, a concept album about a cinema. I quite like the idea of that, or a theatre. You know, it's kind of a building. Nice idea. I can always go for absurd. Now, talking, you mentioned him a moment, a moment ago, actually. Talking of absurd. Yeah. Utopia, Todd Rundgren's Utopia, yeah. Ra. Um, now, we love Todd on this show, don't we? We yep. love Todd. We talked about, I think we talked about on the very first episode, we did a, one of the very first episodes. We and of course, we he produced Bat Out of Hell this year, we've got to remember. We'll come on to that. But we talked about his album, Wizard of True Star, as being one of the great sort of DIY, yep. jack-of-all-trades albums, you know. This is him with his band, uh, utopia now i did listen to this record as part of the research <laughs> for this it's utterly ridiculous in a way that it's almost taking it's an early example of a band of, a, of an artist that is taking the blueprint and using that as the basis for something in itself by which i mean that the influence on utopia was progressive rock bands where the influence on progressive rock bands was yeah. classical music yeah, yeah, jazz yeah. music you know whatever whatever r&b music this is an example this is what must be one of the first examples of a band that have been formed in the image of the progressive rock blueprint and what's interesting is being done by an established artist mm -hmm. in his own right who has fallen in love with i don't know what he's fallen in love with close to the edge or whatever yeah. and so i want to put a band together that's going to play this kind of music but takes it to an almost ludicrous extreme there's an uh, something like an 18 minute epic on here yeah, called yeah. i forget what it's called it's the something glass harp and the sing circle yes yeah it's awful <laughs> it's it just doesn't work at all for me and i love todd yeah, I l absolutely love Todd, and I would love to hear what. To I mean, in a way, you know, I can hear the influence that that that, that kind of music has had on some of other Todd's, some of Todd's other music, where it's also him being Todd as well, and and I kind of like that on albums like uh, Initiation, but here he's trying to make almost a, a stereotypical, at least on that sideline yeah, yeah. epic, a stereotypical piece of conceptual progressive rock, and. For me, it's as bad as all of the bad neo-prog bands that started to try and do that in the 80s. And it just doesn't work at all. What's your take on it, Tim? Totally agreed. I mean, I really like Wizard of True Star. You know, Todd's amazing Todd stuff. Masterpiece, you know? yeah. Um, 
And this just goes off the rails really badly. He was obsessed with Close to the Edge. I think he still says it's one of the albums that completely blew his mind. And you can see why it would blow a musician's mind. Even Ian MacDonald, it was interesting, who was one of the more self-conscious intellectual enemy writers, still felt Close to the Edge was a, was a masterpiece. And, um, and I'd sort of agree with that. You know, it's, it's an instinctive, bizarre piece of work, but Utopia's take on it is, is horrible. To me, it's like kind of the worst of Mahavishnu and the worst of, yes, it's got no heart. It's very clever. And this is the person, you know, who's written some gorgeous tender ballads and will do so again, you know, and how he embraces some of the new wave and electronic pop elements. I think he Amazing. does. He yeah. does some great stuff after yeah. this, but yeah. These, you know, this Utopia album, I just never got. This is the only aspect of Todd that I don't like, which is ironic, you know, for, for coming from me, who's someone that, you know, most people would con consider that I came from the tradition of progressive rock, and I do, but maybe that's why I don't like this. I mean, I've just looked up the title of that song. It's 18 minutes long. It's called Singing, Sing Ring and the Glass Guitar, an Electrified Fairy Tale. <laughs> and the an Electrified Fairy Tale is in brackets. Well, see, yeah, I would take, you know, Sticks, Grand Illusion, Point of No Return, Kansas, and Starcastle over this. Fair I mean, point. Fair I mean, enough. Starcastle are kind of interesting, though. Have you ever heard them? I think I listened to one song. The, the popular wisdom, isn't it, is that they were sort of a, a sort of a watered down yes, wasn't it? Well, it's not really even okay. a watered down yes. Their first album from '76, which obviously came below, is hilarious because they have one influence, and it's yes. Okay. And they do it brilliantly. It's a bit like Jabriath with David Bowie. Right. But what's also interesting with Jabriath and Starcastle is they're so yes, and they've obviously taken the harmonies. It's got a kind of a mid '70s lush production which anticipates going for the one it's so yes they anticipate areas yes go oh, into wow, okay. and i think jabriah sometimes does as well a bit with bowie that there's right. something he takes bowie so literally that actually he anticipates a couple of moves but yeah so Starcastle, the first album is 100 percent epic yes in a way that's sort of entertaining really because it's so accurate but it's not as heartless it's you know there's some lovely melodies there's some crazy sequences in a way that, you know, Ra is kind of charmless for me. Hey! 